happened to read last month that nearly 80% of top college seniors in various uh, universities throughout our nation, including Harvard and Princeton, were given a random American history test and asked such questions as, who said, give me liberty or give me death? Who was the uh, primary framer of the Constitution? And uh, these, these folks with, with pretty basic uh, questions like these, 80% of them got a D or an F on the, uh, on the test. This is uh, top college seniors. And yet these same people, when they were asked um, if they knew who Beavis and, you know, who was, 99% of them could correctly identify who this was. Thomas Jefferson was the guy that made a, a, a neat statement that goes along with this. He said, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. And we are well on our way, I guess, to testing that, uh, that phrase. But I thought about myself, and really I don't know probably as much about American history as I should. And then I began to think as far as our Christian faith. Because there are many people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. There are many people who would say, yes, I'm going to heaven. And yet how many people, if you were to ask them why you're going to heaven, would be able to say why? That they have a message that is ever ready on their lips. That they can say, yes, I believe I'm going to heaven, I'm a Christian, and uh, in two sentences I can tell you exactly why this is so. I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, because in this chapter, Peter not only tells us that that ever-ready message is something that we ought to have, but he also tells us what that ever-ready message is. If you've been with us as we've been going through 1 Peter, you remember that Peter is writing to people who are struggling to live out their faith in times that are hard. And we call the series Faith in Times Like These because much like Peter's readers, we struggle to live out our faith in a culture that doesn't really believe our faith. And if you've been with us, you know that Peter has taught them and us so far that we can, in spite of our trials, we can laugh through the tears, as it were, because the trials that we go through, while they are necessary, are only temporary. We're to, we're to keep an eternal perspective. We're to fix our hope completely on the grace that's to be brought to us when the Lord Jesus comes. And with that eternal perspective, we're to keep uh, focused on two things, God's Word and God's people. We're to live as aliens and strangers in the world. Our behavior is to be excellent. And he's taught us that there's three areas that that behavior needs to be excellent. It starts big with the government, gets a little narrower with uh, your job, your boss, and it gets even narrower, what we've looked at in the last several weeks, um, with your home. And now as we continue in chapter 3, verse 13, Peter goes along the same line as he's, said, as, he's told, as he's told us to have excellent behavior. He says in verse 13, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Here is just kind of a basic principle. Look, you do right and you'll have a good life. And we've seen this uh, throughout chapter 2. We saw with the government. The government is given for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We saw just before verse 13, a couple weeks ago, 
Let him who wants to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And so Peter is essentially saying, look, you want to enjoy a good life? Then live it right. Well, immediately, what comes to mind? What happens, though, Peter, when we live a good life, but it doesn't go right? And Peter lived in the same world that we lived in. And so he says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. So you see, he's giving the other side of the coin, the balanced view. Yes, here is ideally the way it should work. You live right, and you have a good life. But what happens to those that don't hold to your principles? And they put upon you persecution for the very principles that you hold are right, and they are. What do you do at that point? Well, our natural tendency is to want to say it's not worth it. You know, we're darned if we do, we're darned if we don't, so why should, we, uh, why should we live right if it doesn't benefit us? Peter says, live beyond the here and now. You've got to keep that eternal perspective that I've been hammering all along. And he says, remember, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, or even if you suffer for doing what's right, he says that that's pleasing to God, you're blessed. God is not pleased with the fact that you suffer. He's pleased with the fact that you're obedient in spite of the fact that you're suffering. Suffering is just the context in which you get to show that your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter quotes from Isaiah when he, uh, he says there, Let him who, uh, where does he say it, verse 14, uh, Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. He quotes Isaiah from a context in which Isaiah says, uh, you don't live out of fear of men, you live instead out of fear of God or respect for God. And Peter himself exemplified this in his life. And you kind of wonder if he had this in mind as he was writing this. Just listen for a second while I read an episode from Peter's life. It was recorded back in Acts chapter 5. It says, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Even if you should suffer, Peter says, you are blessed. You are blessed. Get the eternal perspective here. Live beyond the here and now. Yes, it hurts. But if you're going to hurt, whether you do right or wrong, you might as well hurt and do right. Rather than being afraid, Peter says, he gives us the alternative now in verse 15. And this verse is the key verse for the entire passage. He says, rather than fearing intimidation, rather than being troubled, verse 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Those of you that have the New International Version in your lap might see that it says uh, to set Christ apart or to, to set apart Christ, which is what sanctify means. NIV probably gives us a little better sense of what it means there. It's as if you have in your hearts many things, but Jesus Christ is to be set apart from everything else. Jesus Christ is to be set apart as Lord, as absolute sovereign master of your life. 
set Jesus Christ in that place alone. That nobody else has that place as Lord. The one that determines every decision for you. The one that determines every emotion, or at least how you will respond to it. The one that determines how you're going to live your life, what job you take, who you marry, where you live. Set Christ apart as Lord. And every decision must be filtered through the grid of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Your behavior as a result of Jesus as Lord. And Peter essentially is saying in this verse, a very practical way that you can set Christ apart as Lord is to always be ready to tell people about him. And so here is a very basic principle that we can easily glean from this verse. That is that making Christ Lord of your heart includes a willingness to gently share him with others. Key word there is willingness to gently share him with others. There was an abbot of a monastery, the head honcho of the monastery, if you don't know what abbot means, honcho of the monastery, calls in this novice, this beginner, into his office and says, tomorrow morning I would like you to give the chapel message. And this guy had never done anything like this before. He was absolutely terrified of public speaking. Um, and the day came, he, his knees were shaking, his hands were quivering, his throat was trembling, and there was a long pause. And finally he asks the question to the sea of other uh, brothers there. He says, do you know what I'm going to say to you? And they just kind of looked at each other and they shook their heads, no. And he says, well, neither do I. Let's stand for the benediction. The next day, the very same thing happens. Chapel fills in, the guy gets up there, knees are shaking, hands are trembling, throat is quivering, long pause. And he asks the question again, do you know what I'm going to say to you? Well, they were all there yesterday, so they shake their head yes. And he says, well, then I don't need to tell you, let's pray, let's stand for, pray for the benediction. Well, the, the abbot calls the guy into his office and says, look, tomorrow morning in the chapel service, you give the message and you do it right or I'm going to put you on 30 days of bread and water. Well, next day, chapel service was at an all-time high. Everybody was there to see what was going to be happening. <laughs> this guy, knees shaking, hands quivering, throat shaking, long pause, and he asked the question, do you know what I'm going to say to you? Well, by this time, they were so confused, half of them were shaking their head yes, half of them were shaking their head no. And he basically looks at them and says, well, do you know what I'm going to say to you? Half yes, half no. He says, those who know, tell those who don't. Let's stand for the benediction. If you've got a message to tell, you need to be able to have the willingness to tell it. Let those who know tell those who don't. And unwittingly, the guy actually had an excellent application to the message that he was scared to death to give. He says, I don't know what it is, but those of you who know it, tell the ones that don't. And again, we come back to that question. Not every single Christian is gifted as an evangelist, okay? We're not all called to be Billy Grahams or Luis Palau's or any of these other big-name radio, television, sincere evangelists. And yet, not every Christian is gifted as an evangelist, and yet every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is commanded to be a witness. We can't wiggle out of that. Maybe not be gifted as an evangelist, but called 
to be a witness. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus said. We did a series some time ago called Good Answers to Good Questions. And the whole purpose of, these, of this series was to equip you to have good answers to the good questions that many people in our culture are asking and which are stumbling blocks for them in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Questions like, is hell really necessary? Or, what good is evil? Or, do miracles really exist? Is the Bible really God's word? Is Christ really the only way to heaven? Is there such thing as absolute truth? Is evolution a solution at all? And so if you were here for that, you might want to pull that stuff back out again and brush up on it. Or you're welcome to, to talk to Larry Strickland or, or uh, request that at the tape place over there. Uh, because the whole purpose of that is to help you and to get you effective for the questions that are asked. And yet, I don't want you to feel like you have to be able to answer each and every question that somebody gives you. Because notice what Peter says in this verse. He says that you want to be ready to everyone who asks you to give an account for what? For the hope that is in you. And in the context of 1 Peter, that hope is the hope of heaven. Why are you going to heaven? Which is the initial question that I asked beginning of the message. How many of you feel, would feel comfortable, those of you who have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are Christians, why are you going to heaven? Because you come to church? Because you pray? Because you give? Because you've been baptized? Because, I mean, all of those are great things. All of those are the things we should do. But are, are any of those the reason that we should go? No. It's simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by Him alone. You don't have to be able to answer every question. You simply have to be able to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because while you may not be able to answer every question, no one can refute the fact that your life has been changed. That is your number one best apologetic as a changed life. No one can refute that. I want us to watch a video clip that's based on a true event. Corey and Betsy Ten Boom probably very familiar with the names, were in the Nazi concentration camp of Ravensbrück back during the war, Second World War, and they had an interesting conversation that accurately reflects the, the topic which we're discussing today. Comfort of help the weak, be patient with everyone, do not repay evil for evil. But always try to do good to one another. Always rejoice. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Jesus Christ. And to the mindless, the word sounds so comforting. In this place, it's mockery. God didn't make this place. Men did. But he has power. Surely he could stop them. Unless, of course, he's a sadist. Oh no, he's love. All love. Then he's impotent. You can't have it both ways, my dear. You see what's around you. We see another world. Just as real. Our life with God. Every day. It gets deeper 
and stronger. You think the two can't exist side by side, but we know they do. We live them both. It's enough knowing that we're so much done, moving from nothing to nothing. But you must believe you are God smells that stench from those chimneys and refuses to do anything. If only you could know his love. I am Maria Brocek, first violinist of the Warsaw Symphony Orchestra. Did your God will this we cannot answer all I can say is that the same God you are accusing came and lived in the midst of our world he was beaten and he was marked and he died on a cross. And he did it for love. For us. And why do you think you, a God of love, sent you here? To obey him. If you know him, you don't have to know why. I think it's an outstanding example of the teaching of what Peter's giving us here. And when he says that you need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, I like the response that they gave, they, that they couldn't explain the will of God in suffering. Suffering is the biggest bunch of nonsense outside of understanding that there is submission to the, the grand will of a sovereign God and that that God is a God of love. And yet, what were they able to do? They were able to come back from the rabbit trails and say, I can't explain that, but here's one thing I know. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for love. It's exactly what Peter is teaching. And in the manner in which it is done, with gentleness and with reverence, is also what needs to be focused upon. Longtime British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge tells how he met Mother Teresa one time while filming a documentary on her work in Calcutta. And he really grew to respect her and had a great appreciation for her but could not accept her faith by and large because of Christian leaders in the church who were such hypocrites. And one time when Mother Teresa was visiting London, she and Muggeridge took a walk and talked together, and he went on and railed about the hypocrisy in the church and how the Christian faith could not be a faith that is real because of all the hypocrisy in it. And later on, Mother Teresa wrote him a letter, sent him a, a book to read, but in her letter she wrote some words that I found uh, wonderful. She says to him, I think I understand you better now. I'm sure that you will understand beautifully everything if you will only become a little child in God's hands. Your longing for God is so deep, 
and yet he keeps himself away from you. He must be forcing himself to do so because he loves you so much as to give Jesus to die for you and for me. Christ is longing to be your food. Surrounded with fullness of living food, you allow yourself to starve. The personal love Christ has for you is infinite. The small difficulty you have regarding his church is finite. Overcome the finite with the infinite. Christ has created you because he wanted you. And I, I find it interesting that just eight years before Muggeridge died in 1990, he finally overcame his inhibitions and regularly began to attend church. Mother Teresa's example well illustrates what Peter is teaching here about the gentleness and respect. And in verse 16, Peter elaborates even further on this attitude of reverence and gentleness when he says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There's somebody in our church, one of our regular attenders, told me this week that he contributes on a regular basis to an internet discussion group. And uh, there's one guy that also contributes to it, who is usually pretty belligerent and uh, obstinate toward believers. And yet, uh, this guy wrote a letter to our brother here in the congregation, or wrote, posted a note to him, in response to notes that our brother has posted on this site. And I want to read it to you. It says, thank you for your numerous posts on the site. Because you have not been confrontational and remained extremely patient even with an agnostic like me. I started searching for something bigger than myself. I never bothered to do this before because of the unpleasant experiences I've had with some who would shove God down my throat. You are an inspiration. You advocate societal solutions to our problems by advocating God. That's the type of solution I can live with. Peter's essentially telling us what our brother has lived out here, and that is that making Christ the Lord of your heart includes a lifestyle which confirms your words to others. See, it's not enough simply to tell the truth with gentleness, but your lifestyle has also got to back that truth up. With Corey and Betsy Ten Boom, they were able to answer gently. Mother Teresa's compassion swayed Muggeridge to place his faith in Christ, and our brother's kindness and patience toward this agnostic did what for no other believer has been able to do, and that is open his mind up to see past the, the, the offensiveness of most of us Christians to the message that we as Christians have to share to the world. Keeping a good conscience in our behavior in spite of unjust treatment confirms the words that we have to say. And in verse 17, Peter goes on to say, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Wow. That's not, one, uh, that's not a verse you'll see on many plaques at Christian bookstores, is it? It's God's will. If so, if it's God's will, that you suffer for doing what is right. That doesn't fit with our American self 
focused theology, the prosperity gospel that so focuses on uh, God doesn't want anybody to hurt. Instead, it says, it's better if God should will it so. He may, he may not. That you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And to some extent, we all will, because Paul said in, a, in one of his epistles that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Perhaps not as much as Corrie ten Boom was here in America, but still we will be persecuted if we are living godly for the Lord Jesus. Of course, the prime example, once again, of this kind of an unjust suffering, as Peter has told us, it's to be ready any time with that message and to also have a lifestyle that backs that up. Who is the prime example, of course, of this lifestyle? The Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 18 that Christ essentially is not asking you to do anything he hasn't done himself. In verse 18 he says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So you have Jesus Christ doing the very thing that he is telling us to do. And in the film clip that we saw, that was the whole basis of what Corey was able to come back and say, look, I may not be able to understand suffering, but one thing I can say is that God took his own medicine in suffering and suffered more than any other human being has ever suffered because he suffered unjustly. He, the just, suffered for the unjust. And if you want to know what the, the, the ever-ready message ought to be that you can have on your mouth when anybody asks you the hope that you have, verse 18 is a great place to get it. For Christ died for sins. Why did Christ die on the cross? He died because our sins separate us from God. And so if our sins are what separate us, that sin problem has got to be removed so that now that there can be reconciliation. And notice it says he died once for all. It's not like the Mass or the transubstantiation in communion where Jesus is sacrificed over and over and over. No, once for all. The just for the unjust. You've got the idea of substitution there. It's a death that we deserved. We're the unjust. But instead, the just died in our place. And for what purpose? To bring us to God. Very well-summarized purpose for Jesus Christ dying on the cross. He died for sins as a substitution in order that he might bring us to God. Because you see, there is no other way to get to God except through Jesus Christ. You can come to church, and that's great. You can pray, that's great. You can give, that's great. You can be baptized, that's great. You can help old ladies across the street. That's great. But what are you going to do with your sin? You can't do anything to erase that. But Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. And if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross as your substitute, your sins are forgiven. Just like that. Just by faith and faith alone. This is what Peter is saying to say your ever-ready message 
Needs to be ever ready. A lifestyle that's there. In fact, here's the message that needs to be ready on your lips. Our prime example is Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice as we go on, um, before we go on, what Peter says there in the last part of this verse. He says, Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Some of you that have the New International Version, I think, have a capital S on your spirit, implying the Holy Spirit. But uh, I think that the NASB is a better interpretation here, because it goes on to say in the next verse, in which he also, verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits, plural, spirits, now in prison, who were once disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Boy, what's he talking about here? Well, remember what I said about putting to death in the flesh, physically he died, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' spirit was alive, even though his body was dead. Why are we pushing that? Because what he says here in verse 19, that after that point of death, he went and made proclamation to other spirits. In other words, other people who had died, and now it was just their spirit. This, um, this verse is often understood, or perhaps misunderstood, I should say, that, that Jesus went down to uh, Hades and offered second chance for people who had died prior to him so that they might hear and have an opportunity to believe in him. That's not at all what it's teaching, because the Bible very clearly teaches that a person is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Um, so what is he doing then? What did Jesus do after his death that he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, to those people who had died during the time of Noah? And why the time of Noah? A very fascinating couple of verses here. Well, again, you might have a translation that says in verse 19 that he went and preached. Uh, that gives the implication of the second chance, and probably a better translation of the word, and it can be translated this way, that is, he made proclamation. That is, he simply went and announced the message of victory uh, between his death and before he was resurrected. Now, why would he pick the people that were alive during the time of Noah, or those particularly that were disobedient, those who were destroyed in the flood? Why would he pick them, of all people, to share this message of victory. Because think about what happened during that time. And where Peter tells us that there's only eight people here that survived. The whole rest of the human race was wiped out by the flood. And so I take it the reason he particularly preached to these people, or he, he made proclamation to these people, is because they represented the whole of humanity at the time of Noah that were judged and condemned because of their sin, because of their lack of faith in what God said was true. So Jesus is there talking to those that represent the whole of humanity, judged for their sin. Jesus is there saying, now I have now dealt with this problem of sin. is a message of victory for him over sin. And eight, we're told, were brought safely through the water, and we know because of their faith. And then we get in verse 21 and 22 that are by far, especially verse 21, the hardest verse, verses, the hardest verse in this entire book. It's a very difficult verse, and it's not so difficult to uh, understand as it is difficult to explain 
to get to that understanding. Because you've got to go 5,000 different places in the book of 1 Peter and understand the whole context to come right back down and understand this one verse. And so I'm just going to give you the skinny, and if you want the large, we can talk later. Okay? So... But what does he say in verse 21? He has just spoken of them being brought safely or saved through the water, speaking of the flood. And then he says in verse 21, and corresponding to that, meaning corresponding to baptism, uh, to the water, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I've got a good friend who got caught up in a denomination that believes that you have to be baptized to be saved. And before, uh, now I don't really see a great advantage in, in uh, bantering or, or hitting Bible volleyball back and forth. You've got a verse, I've got a verse. You've got a verse, I've got a verse. With these, with these folks who, who believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, about ten years ago, I guess it was, I got together with this guy and one of his church leaders, and we talked a little bit about it, but it all came down basically to this verse, because this was their ace in the hole. Because it says right there, baptism now saves you. You look in the New International Version, it says baptism saves you. Same thing. Except, what does it say right after that? It says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, Peter is saying, the baptism saves you, but let me quickly tell you what I mean by baptism. Not removal of dirt from the flesh. Not being dunked. Okay, It's not the water washing over you. Instead, in fact, he says, but it's an appeal to God. Uh, and the word that he uses there for but is an extremely strong contrast in the original language. He says, it's not the physical act of being dunked in the water. It's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. But it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is that which the physical baptism represents. Because what does a physical, physical baptism, <laughs> what, does, what does literal baptism, physical baptism literally mean? What does it represent? It represents something that's going on on the inside. It represents the appeal to God for a good conscience. Notice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what is the point of Peter bringing this up here? Well, for us, in our culture, baptism is not something that we, uh, that we really grasp the great meaning of. We have to really do a good job explaining what baptism means. Hence, it's very easy for denominations and cults to take this verse and lift it out of its context and say, hey, you've got to be baptized to be saved. This totally contradicts the rest of the New Testament and the principle of salvation by faith alone, which goes all the way back to Genesis. So what's the purpose here? Here in America, baptism is not really a threat to our safety. We're not persecuted for being baptized. Or it just kind of looked at funny. What in the world are they doing? When we go out to the lake, people will come over and look. What are they doing? Being baptized. Oh, great. What does that mean? Well, if you go over to another country, like China, for example, or particularly countries that are Muslim countries, baptism has a very big significance over there. Because you can be persecuted, you can be imprisoned, and some even put to death. Because baptism clearly represents a break from the old life of sin. Which is why I think, after coming off of the illustration of the flood, 
Peter says, corresponding to that, corresponding to the flood water. Let's talk about baptism, what it represents. Because what did the flood do? The flood wiped out the whole sin of the human race. The past sin is gone, the flood cleansed it, and now you've got a new life to start over. That's what the flood represented. Leaving behind the life of sin, going forward to the life of faithfulness. It's exactly what our baptism represents. Is the appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so essentially what Peter is saying here is, you need to have that ever-ready message on your lips. Be ready to tell anyone that asks you. Here's why I know I'm going to heaven. God has changed my life because I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And let that changed life be demonstrated. Have a behavior that backs that up. And so as he's told us that in the first part, he gives us this bit about baptism because in Peter's culture, as in other cultures in our, in our world today, baptism represented that you were taking a stand for Jesus Christ. It's not like we just you know, go out to the lake in obedience to the Lord, but it doesn't really mean that we're taking a stand. Peter is saying, in this context, you need to be willing to do what is right, to suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. That's not for baptism, that's not us for baptism, but that's us for many other things. Another taking a stand uh, might be speaking out at your job. It might be with your neighbor. But it means taking a stand. It means being willing enough, challenges the readers to have courage to, to commit to take a public stand for Jesus Christ, and if necessary, to be willing to die if that's what a good conscience requires. That's why he brings up the baptism business. It's just saying here is a public opportunity. You need to be willing to do it publicly. So to sum up what Peter has said in these verses, he's telling us for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus that there's going to be circumstances in which we suffer because of righteousness, then suffer because of righteousness. And in that, be willing to take a stand. Have that message ready to be able to share. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I place my faith in Him. My sins are forgiven. The same is true of you. Be ready, be willing to take that stand. And as the novice in the monastery said with shaking knees, so I want to conclude and to say to you, let those who know tell those who don't. Let's bow and pray. Lord, we all bow before you today and thank you for the grace that enables us to live in a country where we are very gently persecuted, by and large, for our faith. And yet, Lord, you've, you've told us not to just go with the flow, but we are, need to be willing to take a stand for our faith. And when the culture goes against our faith, we are to swim against the culture and to be willing at every moment to be ready, to have that ever-ready message on our lips, to give a defense for the hope that we have through our faith in Jesus Christ and to have a lifestyle that backs up that message. And so I pray that you give us the boldness and the eyes to see opportunities where we can share that ever-ready message. And Lord, I just, I pray, I take this opportunity and pray for the one perhaps here today 
who is hoping to get into heaven by their good deeds. That you might show them that that cannot remove their sin, they must place their faith in Jesus. That your Holy Spirit would touch their heart and accept what is theirs free apart from works. Father, we love you today and thank you that your word is relevant to our lives. May we honor you by living it. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.